heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin cultural revolutions. Joined by my friend and colleague, Ben Prentice, again today. We're trying to make this a more regular thing, trying to get this show back on the road, even if it's just Ben and I talking about stuff that we think is interesting. We think that that's valuable content, and this episode is no exception. I think you guys are going to like it. It's me and Ben just totally railing into socialists and Marxist ideals and pretty much calling out anybody who considers themselves a libertarian socialist, and particularly the ones that are in Bitcoin, we just find exceptionally stupid. I think this was a really good episode. I think you guys are going to really like it. Lots of great discussion, lots of cool talking points. Let me know what you guys think. Let's go ahead and jump right into it, and I will come back with you at the end of the show. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. The other day I got into this, it wasn't an argument because I don't argue with these people because their their points are so dumb. I just <laughs> tell them that they're dumb and right. then they get upset and they're like, you need to formulate your arguments better. But I got into this uh, conversation with uh, these individuals on, on Bitcoin Twitter that apparently call themselves libertarian socialists. Now I know that these guys are around. I knew that they were around, um, but... <laughs> To have them actually like come at me, well, first of all, the way that they express themselves, these people always do this. Marxists are notorious for this. They change definitions, and then they try to convince you that you don't understand the definitions of the words that you're using. Um, and they always, they always try to point the finger at you as being the one who, who doesn't understand what you're talking about. Generally, the opposite is true. Um, I don't know that that's the case for everybody that hasn't studied these topics in depth, but I would don't want to speak for you, Ben, but I'm, I feel that you're pretty well read in the Austrian school and you understand um, the axiomatic first principles of liberty and um, free markets and how those things are beneficial to men in societies. Um, so I'll start this off by saying my little talking point here that there are two kinds of socialists or Marxists or communists, and I'm going to use those terms interchangeably, and I'll explain why a little bit later. But I use those terms interchangeably because to me, they're ultimately the same thing. Um, I understand they're not all exactly the same implementation, but I use those terms interchangeably because for me, for all intents and purposes, they're the same. There's two kinds of socialists, the puppet masters and the useful idiots. Ben, what do you think? Okay. So basically you're saying that the puppet masters are, are the ones in, in power and the useful idiots are the ones that, that kind of rally their cry for them, so to speak. Sure. So um, there's this phrase that I throw around a lot that I know people just nod their head when they hear it. And they, a lot of people probably don't understand it. Some do. It's called a Hegelian dialectic. Um, so the idea is you have an agenda, right? Like let's say your agenda is just more control, more power. Um, so what you need to do, you can't just take the power, right? Because the people won't allow you. So what you have to do is you have to provide 
uh, conflict and you have to provide resolution. So you know your agenda, right? Let's say your agenda is just more centralized control, right? So your conflict is um, a terrorist threat, right? You instill fear into people. You make them willing to give up some of their liberty in order to fight against this fear. Your resolution is a new um, counterterrorism police force. It's essentially martial law, but it's sort of a soft martial law. It's not actually the military. It's your peacekeeping force, right? It's your counterterrorism force. And through that conflict and the resolution that you provide, both of which you've created, you've now achieved your original agenda, which is deprivation of liberty, more centralization of control, um, all without the, the people who, who don't understand these power dynamics ever being any of the wiser. They think that you are the valiant leader, that you're leading them through this crisis that you created by providing them with this great solution, which was really what your agenda was all along. And that's ultimately what Marxism is about. Um, that's what it was founded on. Marx, Karl Marx was a brilliant propagandist. Um, what are your thoughts, Ben? Right, so the Hegelian dialectic is, is kind of the structure of how false flag operations can work. But I think I would dig into, just from a logical point of view, uh, the dialectic is, is kind of a it's a fallacy there because a dialectic is usually when you, uh, I, I mean, I, okay. So a dialectic is when you're, you're comparing two ideas and, and this is, is a false comparison. It's a false contrast because you, you've, you falsified the initial premise of, of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is what we see actually in American politics all the time, right? We have this false dichotomy of left and right. And really, they're not that different at the end of the day. Like the economic policy isn't that different. The foreign policy isn't that different. Um, there are lots of focus on civil social issues. There's a big dog and pony show on TV that makes you think that the other guy is really bad and your team is really good. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the, the policy isn't that much different. And when you see the, the big sweeping, uh, particularly economic and financial decisions have to be made, there's usually, uh, for the most part, fairly universal support. Uh, you'll have your occasional detractors, your Thomas Masseys of the world who say, no, let's not do that. The Ron Pauls, right? The no man's. But generally speaking, um, bipartisan politics is more of a, a smoke and mirrors. It's a Hegelian dialectic ultimately is what it is. Right. And that false dichotomy, false dichotomy is, a, is a logical fallacy. So you have to be very aware of those things because they can lead you to the wrong conclusions. That's what logical fallacies do. Um, so let's let's dive into uh, libertarian socialism because you know on on its head it sounds like uh, an oxymoron, if you will. Right. So with with the Austrians, um, with particularly. So let's clarify: libertarian anarcho-capitalism. Right. Laissez-faire. Right. A, a priori, we're reasoning from first principles here. Liberty is fundamental. Liberty is axiomo axiomatic. Liberty cannot exist where there is less liberty. Less liberty exists where there is less liberty. That's, that's, I shouldn't have to explain that. That's just axiomatic. But yet people don't seem to understand this. And this is where the Hegelian dialectic comes in. Marx was smart enough to convince people that by giving up liberty, you can have more liberty, right? By um, abolishing the right to private property um, within certain constraints of free market systems that everybody who's a libertarian socialist agrees upon uh, it's okay to redistribute private property in those instances to prevent what they determine to be um, morally hazardous situations. Would you agree with that? 
Right. And, and it's, it, that's, that's the theft that's taking away your liberty of, of the redistribution. And um, I, I can kind of hear the libertarian socialists that are listening, all one of them, um, that uh, they're probably saying something along the lines of, well, libertarian socialists believe that um, there shouldn't be centralized control of like large private companies and that those should be more like a co-op type model. And um, that, it, that, that is the case, but that, um, th see, those systems can can exist under a libertarian uh, a system of government, an anarcho-capitalist system of government. People can come together to form these voluntary agreements. Um, but when you write it into the structure of these things, then you're you're you are taking away liberties. So it it, it does seem uh, counterproductive. Well. Yeah, and, and on the surface, it always feels very benign. But if you ever prod these people about what it is that you fundamentally disagree on, if you ever catch them in a corner where they can't back out of, they will admit, uh, and I had someone do this to me on Twitter just the other day, they will admit to you openly, they'll say, um, theft of private property is nonviolent. Right. You don't have a right uh, in, in terms with the non-aggression principle. You don't have a right to escalate to physical violence against something that is nonviolent. And they will sit there and tell you that the theft of your private property is nonviolent. Um, so ultimately, the ultimate goal of this uh, Marxist system is to justify and legalize um, certain varying magnitudes of theft of personal property. And I would argue I don't even argue theft of private property is wholly violent by its very nature, right? I mean, you, you just go and look at any Marxist cultural revolution in history. They are extremely violent and it involves a lot of death and a lot of poverty. And it's because of the theft and disrespect, total just disregarding of um, the idea of private property. I mean, you look at the, the Austrians, you look at the founding fathers of America, and they were all very clear that private property is one of the fundamental pillars of liberty. Without it, you can't have any of the other stuff. Right, and that's, that's where I have, obviously, such, uh, such issues with this idea, because it, it the, it, there's either a defense of private property or there isn't. And you know, at, at what size of, of a, a piece of property does it become, oh, well, that's too big for one entity to hold, and therefore it must be socialized in some way, right? So that, again, it's like, you know, how, how are these lines drawn? And it just seems like this amorphous blob of, um, you know, fancy words that, that doesn't actually mean anything, right? Right. You always have to break these things down to their most basic level. I mean, let's say that there's a hundred people in the world and I'm one of them, right? And I have an apple orchard and um, people are getting tired of paying for my apples. They want to just share all the apples amongst themselves and they don't want me to make a profit. So they decide all 99 of them get together and they, and they have a vote. They say, all right, we're going to go take this guy's apples as long as everybody agrees that it's okay. And they vote on it and they all agree it's unanimous. We're going to take this guy's apples. That's theft, right? Yeah. It's, it's just because 99 people agree on it. Just because the majority get together and say, this guy shouldn't have those apples. That's, that's a deprivation of liberty. That's a deprivation of my ability to provide for my family, to provide a way of life for myself, my pursuit of, of happiness and, and freedom. All right. Um, and yeah, and you expand that bigger, and you you know build a build a company, and you you build a brand, and you you maybe uh, do research and development, and you, you do all these supply chain, and you build this amazing thing, and then uh, all these people come along and say, nope, that thing is too big, and now we're going to take it away from you. And if you defend it, apparently that's violence. You defending it, but not us taking it. It, it, it it's absolute insanity. Right. 
So there exists this asymmetric profile of risk and return when it comes to capital accumulation and, and capital investment in entrepreneurship, right? Um, this idea that the laborer uh, is entitled to the fair wage, right? Whatever that is, that the laborer is entitled to the means of production. This lie, right? I, I said it at the beginning of the show, uh, Marx was a brilliant propagandist because this idea is very enticing. It's very itching to the ears, but you have to run these things through your understandings of first principles. And if they don't hold water, then you have to discard them because they're lies. They're wrong, right? I believe that they're, I believe that moral relativism is to blame um, for these types of things where this idea that, that some things are right under certain circumstances and some are not. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. Something is either right or it's wrong. This asymmetric risk and return profile um, of entrepreneurship, where the entrepreneur is the one that's accumulating the capital and then taking the risk, right? Because entrepreneurs are not guaranteed return, not in a free market system. They might be in a uh, social monetarist system like we have today that we'll touch on, but the uh, entrepreneur might be um, scraping and saving and deferring consumption in the present so that he can invest in a potentially profitable entrepreneurship venture in the future. That's his risk to take. Therefore, the profits are his, right? And in the event that he's unprofitable, he still has to pay his laborers. Um, he's oftentimes paying his laborers at a loss to sell a product, hopefully to break even or make a profit in the future. Um, you got to think when you're working in a factory and you're being employed by an entrepreneur who's risked his capital to create this business venture, he's paying you weekly or biweekly or whatever it is. And he's paying you out of his own capital uh, accumulation until he's able to take that product to market and actually get a return on it. He's paying you at a loss uh, for your labor. You don't own the means of production. You're not entitled to the means of production. You didn't take the risk. Yeah. And I suppose you can make a, a skin in the game argument here where, um, it may not be obvious at first because if you think, you know, the workers being part of this this co-op um, that is described in in, in this theory, uh, that they would have skin in the game because they work there and therefore, you know, they, they care about the direction of the company. But any of them can leave at any point, not having invested upfront capital, uh, like you said, and and all, all this planning, so that they they can affect decisions of this company um, and and then just walk away from it, right? So it, I think that, yeah, I. I I, I have so much trouble with this. I, I, I can't even understand how, how Bitcoiners who have such respect for private property would say, um, well, actually, you know what? I can too. And, and that's what, it's like you say, this stuff sounds so enticing, right? So like when I overhear, you know, I have, I have some friends that, that lean towards ideologies similar to, to this or just like Marxism or socialism of some kind. And they really just want to, they want to help people. They want to lift people up and they, they feel like these people have been falling through the cracks of the system. And, you know, obviously we have our own ideas wh about why this system is failing society as a whole right now, as you can see, it's breaking apart. It seems in, in, in specific places that we can see, but it, it, it's, it comes from a, like a place of altruism that people want to support this. And I think that's why it's so important that, that we discuss these ideas and explain why they're, they're, they're damaging to society and why, um, embracing private property and liberty is the way forward and it will actually help people. Um, and, and I think a lot of this stems from the misconceptions about um, what we have today. And you, you just touched on that a second ago, but um, I'm sure that we'll dig into that. Right. And I call this um, socialist concern trolling this, um, this idea that like, well, yeah, but if we don't 
uh, if the labor doesn't take control of the means of production, if the proletariat doesn't rise up against the bourgeoisie, well, then we'll just end up in these situations where one small group controls all of the capital and they tell us exactly what to do and exactly how to live. Um, guys, we already live in that system. <laughs> Communists live in that system. Socialists live in that system. We live in that system to some degree just because we're under the tyranny of social monetarism. Colin, but, I, have a, I have a question. How did, without trying to derail you too much there, how did those, um, those socialist experiments that we've seen um, uh, that, that, that were undertaken in the world, how did those end and how did they, quote, save themselves from uh, the socialist right. system? Yeah, so it's, it, I mean, it's ironic. You go and look at these Marxist, socialist, communist experiments, and they all do the exact same thing, right? They all have these massive sweeping centralizations of power. They execute the intelligentsia. And then they literally, the only people left are the ones that are just dumb and keep their mouth, dumb or keep their mouths shut long enough to stay alive. And then they build up these industrial revolutions of sorts in their country with this extremely centralized pocket of um, economic power. And then they become economically capitalist because it's the only way that they can make a profit. Um, Wait, what? Wait, yeah. I, I thought they were socialists, though. They're right. They, they stay what? communist culturally and, and socialist culturally, but they have capitalist economic revolutions because you're only able to... You cannot centrally plan uh, economies. It, it doesn't work. You don't have enough information to plan out how many shoes you need one month and how much butter you need another month and how to allocate labor and prices uh, and capital to those different systems that are all uh, acting independently of one another based on the human action of various individuals in a society. You don't ever have enough information to centrally control those things. And the only people who ever have even a little bit of an inkling on how to properly solve those problems are the entrepreneurs who have spent enough time in that field and are willing to skin in the game, risk capital uh, in order to potentially profitably solve that problem. One way to look at um, what you know what he's talking about here, you could call it like the socialist cycle, where um, you know you you get a bunch of capitalism and a bunch of entrepreneurs, and they accumulate all this capital, and then the socialists come along and then redistribute it, and they essentially just start using up all that accumulated capital. And you know when entrepreneurship isn't happening and the the, the needs and wants of consumers aren't being satisfied uh, through a free system, that eventually it just kind of dwindles to the point where and you can see these destitute, you know, like um the like uh, the USSR and and how those things just eventually start to crumble as all that gets used up by these uh, very inefficient uh, allocators of capital. And then they have to go back to capitalism. Right. And you can see this in the data. Like if you go read Frank Dicotter's three-part series on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, first of all, it's probably going to keep you up at night because it's extremely disturbing. But second of all, you'll see real data that they've pulled out of um, Chinese Communist Party records that show how, how drastically the quality of life for Chinese going through the Chinese Communist Revolution decreased. Chinese were actually, they had a higher quality of living, um, discounting the time during the, the World War II when you, know, you had the Japanese imperialists invading and the rape of Nanking and all that stuff. The Chinese people went through a lot in that period of time. But before that, they were a feudalist economy and generally had a better quality of life than they did under um, the communist revolution, just based on the fact that, um, yes, while it was feudalism, and yes, like if you weren't a landowner, it was really difficult to make a living for yourself. Over generations, your family could actually advance from being uh, an agrarian peasant that was slept on a dirt floor to a merchant class or maybe even beyond that. 
uh, if, if you were a go-getter enough and you understood the dynamics of market forces and, and how to accumulate capital and solve problems profitably. Um, yes, the landowners were always at an advantage in that system, but that really isn't any different than the system that we're in today of social monetarism. Um, and I was touching on the, the socialist concern trolling piece. Um, you know, a lot of times these people's arguments is, well, if we don't, if, if you're, you're a fool, you anarcho-capitalists, you're naive fools, you have this childish view of the world. If we let this free market capitalism just run rampant, well, then one corporation will control everything and we'll get paid in um, company store tickets and we'll have to buy everything through them. The people that say this stuff are so out of their minds. They're so out of touch with reality and they so obviously haven't closely studied the history. They've studied someone else's take on the history, but they haven't gone back and actually looked at these things like these company stores that provided these people, these lifestyles and paid them in store coupons. For example, were oftentimes doing those things at a loss in order to provide their employees with enough of a lifestyle boost to entice them to stay around. Um, Yes, the companies were making profits, but profits are necessary in a free market system in order to allocate capital properly to those that are profitably solving the problems. Yeah, so do you, do you want to dig into this uh, social monetarism? I, I find this, this concept so interesting. Or, sure, or, or, yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess before we get there, we should, we should finish off what we're talking about now. Okay. Um, the... And I think the reason that this comes up, the reason this came up for me is because I've been trying to tear socialists a new asshole on my Twitter. And the reason for that is because it is fundamentally incompatible uh, with liberty. And this has really come up in, in recent cultural shifts that we're having in America, where you're watching um, these protests that are happening, which on the surface are about racial inequality and those types and civil rights inequality, which... Um, we won't really get into that right now because I don't think it's really relevant, but probably a conversation for a different day. But you, I saw this mural. I think it was in Italy and it was Lenin, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., George Floyd, and Angela Davis. And people were like, why is Lenin on this mural with all of these people, these civil rights activists? And I'll tell you why because they are all communists except for george floyd i don't i don't imagine george floyd was a was a philosophically deep economic policy type thinker well, but he, he, he might have been. been yeah he could have been you know, i didn't know the guy um but mlk malcolm x angela davis lennon these people all have one thing in common what is it they did not believe that private property and the free market capitalist system were the best way to solve problems in a society so this is like the opposite of the Hegelian dialectic. It's it's like a false comparison, right? P putting these things next to each other, like it, it, it's a, it's another form of propaganda. Well, these these civil rights activist movements, right? Not that there haven't been problems um, no, with equality and civil rights in America. That is certainly not what I want to say. What I mean to say is you should go and read like some Thomas Sowell and understand um, the the nuance of these things and understand that a lot of times the issues that you're seeing manifest themselves that appear to be racial on the surface are actually socioeconomic. And yes, while there is racial inequality in certain areas of society, I would argue far less so today um, for minorities in America than ever before in American history, probably more so for um, the Caucasian groups than anything else. But like I said, I don't want to get into that too much because it'll derail us. 
Um, you go and look at like the Yuri, the Yuri Beznamovs um, of the world, the, the KGB defector, the KGB propagandist defector who came to America and literally said, okay, guys, look, this is how it works. Um, we trick people into thinking that they're taking all of the power by rising up and breaking down the uh, stabilization of their society and instilling Marxism in its place. And then we execute all of the idealists and now we have complete control. I mean, he literally said he, he came to America and showed the communist playbook uh, play by play and says, this is exactly what the KGB tries to trick people into thinking. And this is why we do it, because it makes us makes it totally easy for us to just completely take over. And that is the Hegelian dialectic at work. And I truly believe that that's why you see the people that are pushing these events. Um, if you if you look closely, you'll see communist undertones. You'll see them talking about things like taking wealth away from um the bourgeoisie, or in this case, it's particularly the white man and redistributing it. Um, and, and these are natural, um, natural, what do you call them? Populist uprisings that you do see in uh, situations where wealth inequality is exacerbated like we have, and that we can translate to the social monetarist system that we have today. Ben, go ahead. So I, I, I think this is so funny because uh, Robert Breedlove was talking about this on Twitter and it was something that um, Max Hillebrand and I kind of, you know, developed a terminology to independently from, from Robert. And uh, I think I was talking to Max once and I said, you, you know, thinking about the, the, the type of money that we have, uh, it, it's kind of like fascist money. And, and he said, yeah, but you know what an even better way to describe it is, is like social, socialized money. And I was like, oh, okay. It's, it, and it's like social monetarism, right? And, and Robert has some uh, excellent threads about that if you want to go look it up. But what I mean by that is that it's, it's centralized. Um, it's, it's monopoly centralized ownership of the means of production of money itself, right? So if, if communism is, is the state-owned um, means of production, well, this is just the state-owned means of production of money. Right. And uh, the the worst part about this, the 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 fallacy that people can't see through is that they point to the system and they say, look, capitalism is failing us. Capitalism uh, is, you know, crumbling our roads and, um, and and stratifying wealth. And, you know, there's look at the massive wealth inequality that we've seen and uh, that that's not the case. This is a, a, a bastardized form of capitalism where they can continuously. Um, manipulate the supply of money and therefore distort prices and um, and and thieve away um, all of the hard work of the people that are 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 doing you know satisfying their own individual um, wants and needs uh, and in order to satisfy consumer wants and needs and th this is hilarious to me because uh, this libertarian socialist movement um, at at least. Uh, in some ways was, was sparked by Noam Chomsky and Noam Chomsky was, uh, uh, was, had noted that, um, you know, in, inequality had soared since the 1970s. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. And then he also noted that a lot of this uh, got even worse in the 1980s under, um, basically liberalization, um, and deregulation of, of financial markets in some ways. But, so it would it would sound you know if you forget the Bretton Woods part the the 1970 part it would sound like he's trying to say that uh, well the the liberalization of these financial um, markets was was to blame for the inequality and and I I do agree actually but that's not why it's because the money is screwed up in the first place if you liberalize 
Um, if you deregulate with sound money, well, that would be a different thing. But uh, that's, it's a very important thing to note there. So, Yeah, and this is something that um, I run into constantly. And it's not fun to have to argue with these same silly, tired, um, academia-laden fiat ideas all the time. Because they're bad ideas. They're not rooted in first principle thinking. They're not based on logical deduction. They are fallacies. Um, this idea, and, and yeah, on that point, Ben, you and I see a lot of the meta narratives through WTF 1971 and the, the dialogue that happens around that website. And you see a lot of people pointing fingers at us, saying that it's confirmation bias, saying that it's um, disingenuous, saying that it's pushing a narrative. When really all that we've done is take a bunch of data and put it in one place. We haven't drawn any conclusions for people. We've just put arrows on charts that say 1971 and you see lots of trends happening, right? Yeah, and apparently asking a question is disingenuous when putting it near data. I, right, I, I, didn't, right. I didn't know that. To even insinuate that <laughs> one particular event could have been um, responsible for all of this parabolic an, an uh, anomaly in data science is heresy in the traditional academic world. It's absurd to challenge. It's absurd when challenging the status quo um, paints a target on your back as someone with an ulterior motive. So what we've found with these meta narratives uh, is that people very often point the fingers at the symptoms of the problem and falsely accuse them of being the cause, right? So you can call it confirmation bias all you want, but if you study first principles, Austrian economics thinking and free markets and, and private property and liberty and all of the things that we've kind of touched on a little bit uh, today, then you will see a breakdown in the incentive structure of the relationship between the consumer and the entrepreneur. Right, and, and I've always argued that it, it is the it is the removal of any kind of um, tie to a sound money that has concentrated power and has concentrated wealth because of the stratification um, larger percentage of your wealth you can afford to hold in illiquid assets and therefore can benefit from the inflation of those assets while the poorer you are the less able you are to have you know houses or stocks as a percentage of your wealth because you live you know more like paycheck to paycheck so how many of those assets can you can you maintain and this is the concentration of, of, of economic power and wealth. And libertarian socialism is rejecting capitalism um, due to a concentration of economic power in the hands that have the most capital. Well, that's interesting. Um, libertarian socialism aims to di distribute the power more widely. Um, so then it becomes this redistribution mechanism. And then again, it goes back to those inefficiencies. Um, so it's just a sad cycle of, you know, just like Colin was saying, uh, that you're pointing to the symptom of the problem or or even worse, pointing to the system and saying, this is free unabated capitalism and that's the problem when it, it's anything but that, when when the money is in the, the hands of, of the, you know, the central powers. 
Right. And this social monetarism uh, phenomenon, I think doesn't even go deep enough of explaining the disruptions that happen uh, in the relationship between the consumer and the entrepreneur. Because when it comes to economic calculation, uh, the savvy entrepreneur has to factor in the discount rate. Uh, he has to determine the opportunity cost of capital and the replacement value cost of assets. Uh, when that um, when that credit rate is artificially set by a central bank rather than capital accumulation in a free market, uh, you see a distortion in the way entrepreneurs are able to perform their economic calculations because where the uh, interest rates are telling them that yes, there is enough capital accumulated that the replacement value cost potential of this asset is low enough that your opportunity cost allows you to say clear cut this forest full of trees um, you are disrupting that uh, traditional market force by artificially setting credit rates, right? Because we hear it all the time, oh, when there's deflation, right? We have to uh, offer cheap credit. We have to inject liquidity. We have to kickstart the machine again. Of course, Ben and I know, and, and we've talked about this before, that the Great Depression certainly wasn't caused by deflation. It was quite the opposite. It's the same problem that we have today. It was inflation causing malinvestment leading to deflation with a cascade of debt liquidation. Right, and, and they inflated the money supply, and then when they realized how much gold was there and, and how much paper there was, there was a, a very abrupt contraction of that money supply, which literally caused monetary hyperdeflation and therefore um, offset all these uh, calculations of these economic actors. Um, and, and furthermore, building off of what you were just saying, uh, Colin, um, it, it's, it's not just this rate of, of uh, interest that is set by um, an authority versus um, a, a free market individual actors. Um, it is the problem that, you know, I, I'm talking about holding these wealth assets uh, and, and how that's stratifying wealth. But it, that problem is, is actually far, far crazier because it, it turns out our, our banking system itself is using these assets as a form of money. Um, and so it's not just wealthy people holding these assets um, to preserve their wealth. That's, that's a monetization of those assets. It's the banking system itself that's using it. And uh, if you'll recall in 2008, um, a lot of the... Uh, the problem was blamed on these mortgage-backed securities. Well, these mortgage-backed securities, um, after they cut them up into these tranches and they use all this um, really interesting uh, math to, to, to like carve out the pieces that are, are very low risk by selling that risk off to somebody else who will, is willing to take the high risk, they like created these assets uh, that are much better at being um, money. They're better at being a, a long-term store of value than, than dollars itself. And these are the things that underlie our system. It's the, these are the things that are included in the capital ratios of banks. And uh, it, it is the very monetization of these assets that is due to the poor uh, qualities of our money. And it is the monetization of those assets that causes other problems. And uh, uh, Colin, you, you're working on this really interesting um, way of describing um, how the monetization of these assets has disrupted uh, economic entrepreneurship at all, right? Right. I mean, you know, we, we keep calling it social monetarism. And you look at the way, and, and I've mentioned it several times now, you look at the way that the relationship, uh, the traditional market forces of economic calculation have been disrupted. 
uh, for the entrepreneur in his relationship to the consumer. Have you guys looked around recently and just kind of felt like, why does it just feel like these corporations and what they have to offer just keeps getting shittier and shittier and shittier? It's not the way it's supposed to work in a free market. And it's funny because you go and look at the way things work in like a communist society or a socialist society, any form of flavor of Marxism, you see the same types of breakdown in that relation because the entrepreneur is not able to perform the economic calculation necessary to uh, profitably and efficiently. Those, those two words are basically interchangeable, profitability and efficiency. Because um, whatever entrepreneur is the most efficient is going to be the most profitable. Solve the wants and needs of the consumer, the acting human man. Um, you see the same types of breakdowns that we're seeing now. I'll read some statistics for you guys. Uh, in 2008, right at the height of the housing boom, uh, the financial sector made up 7% of the economy and only created 4% of the jobs and yet generated a third of all corporate profits. Uh, these, these stats are from Rana Ford's book, um, makers and takers. Uh, and then another stat, uh, Apple, which is a technology engineering comp company with lower R&D spending as a percentage of sales in the history of its company ever right now, uh, and had a war chest of $145 billion in cash in 2013, chose to borrow $17 billion. All right, I'm sorry, they did what? They borrowed $17 billion. They had $145 billion in cash. Why? Why would they borrow money? Hmm. You have to ask why, right? Because of the opportunity cost of replacement of capital, because it was easier for them to borrow because credit is so cheap. And it's, you, you're watching this shift take place where it's more profitable for these organizations with lots of capital and lots of access to cheap credit, um, particularly these companies that are positive cash flow and have high cash, uh, high cash balances that have huge access to cheap credit um, are engaging in financial engineering rather than the technological engineering that their company was built on. And that's because that financial engineering is more profitable for them under this cheap money, soft money, cheap credit system than profitably and efficiently serving the needs and meeting the needs of the consumer. This is why you saw Apple borrow $17 billion in 2013 and then use it to pump the price of their stock. They used it to buy back stock. To, it makes the shareholders happy. It makes the board members happy. It makes the company look awesome, but it doesn't do anything for the consumer. Now, on the flip side of that, I would actually argue that in a way, Apple is meeting the needs of consumers here, but they're doing it differently than making iPods and iPhones. They're meeting the needs of consumers in that they are um, filling in the gap left by our money system by uh, creating a more money-like asset, which is their equity. Wow. Anybody that can really dive into this and understand what is really happening here and then point to capitalism as the problem uh, is out of their mind um, because this is so far removed from, um, from this idea of uh, individuals um, acting in a free market because the market's not free. The prices aren't real. Um, whatever the Fed prints is what the prices are, right? So the entire system is 
been d devoid of, of any kind of market signals. Uh, you know, look at look at this disaster that we're going through as a as a globe right now, and and and. Uh, Unemployment has never been higher, and there's that image of Jim Cramer, and the markets are like all-time highs. I mean, where's your price discovery, folks? Uh, it's just absolute insanity. Right, and this is what, and it, and it's more than that too. Like it's more than the inflation. It's the postponement of the liquidation of malinvestment. It was Mises who said that you cannot avoid the ultimate liquidation of malinvestment. It was Lionel Robbins who said that nobody likes it. Like liquidation of malinvestment sucks. It affects everybody. It hurts everything. But the longer you put it off, the worse it gets. It just builds up and builds up and builds up. And your only option is to let it liquidate, just rip the Band-Aid off, or to kick the can down the road. And what you're seeing happen in the United States right now is the preamble of currency failure. Yeah. You know what's even worse about this, Colin? You want to talk about uh, misaligned incentives is that because money is so well known to be a poor store of value that this society um, has driven into all of our heads. I mean, ask anybody that knows anything about preserving their wealth and they'll say, you have to hold stocks, you have to hold real estate. And that's, I mean, that's, that's true. If you don't, if you just hold cash, it will devalue. Uh, you, you lose about half your value every 15 or 20 years. So the entire U.S. And, 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 you know, that echoes out into the rest of the world is so invested in these markets, the stock markets and, and real estate markets, that they're, they're all cheering for the Fed to pump up their stocks, right? They don't want to see this liquidation of malinvestment because that would be painful and it would be massively deflationary. Uh, and so the, all the incentives are, are misaligned because uh, everyone wants to see stock number go up, right? Right. Well, I mean, look at how locked into the Ponzi uh, half of the nation is. You've got uh, incentive structures set up in such a way with tax deferment for 401ks that you are incentivized to enter the Ponzi as early as you can. And then once you're in the Ponzi, as soon as you start contributing to the Ponzi, you don't want the Ponzi to end because you are literally taking your life savings that you maybe would have been keeping in something more liquid um, than tax deferred equity and tax deferred government debt, something that you could have used to start a business or at least um, minimize your, um, minimize your debts. You are deferring using that capital in order to put it into this uh, asset inflation bubble in the hopes of exiting that system before it collapses. And you might not have that internalized, but those are the incentives that are in play for you. And yeah, you don't want this asset bubble to pop. You need to get yours and get out. And really, if that is able to happen for anybody, it's going to be the boomers who get out before it's too late and then move the majority of their wealth out of the 401k into assets. Yeah, man. Um, the demographics, uh, go, you can check out some of Raul Paul's work on, on the, you know, what's happening right now, but it's, it's pretty scary because nobody really knows what to do with their, with their money and their money like assets because uh, there's so much uncertainty, and a lot of that uncertainty uh, is at the hands of, um, you know, the people that uh, the twelve people or the five people that that work at the Federal Reserve that that decide these policies, and uh, and we all have to read the tea leaves and figure out, you know, what to do next. And can, you know, I've heard it talked about over and over again, but it, it, it's worth mentioning again that all this you know, hand wringing over, you know, where should we be putting our money? 
um, would be better, uh, that time would be better used by our, our individuals in our society to, um, you know, actually do their jobs or, 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 or um, start new businesses. And instead, um, you know, like Colin is saying that this financial engineering is more profitable. Um, man, you wonder why consumer needs aren't, aren't being met because um, they're, they're, they're just pumping up their stocks and it, and it, it all makes perfect sense from this perspective. It's just, it's sad. I, and the only way to realign the incentives is a, is a sound money where um, people don't need to utilize the moneyness of uh, relatively hard assets. And despite their liquidity to preserve their wealth, they can, um, they can hold liquid cash and uh, they can then accumulate that cash. And, and then those who are in a position to invest uh, and those are, uh, are, 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 are are good capital allocators and that, that have the right information to allocate that capital uh, will invest in um, theoretically sound companies. And when all this investment, you know, you know, these, all these Americans and um, that are just t tossing their money in an index fund, uh, index fund, that is not a sound allocation of capital. It's just a blind allocation of capital, which makes things even worse because it, it just, again, it destroys this price discovery of what stocks are supposed to do, which is supposed to be people allocating money to the most sound companies. Uh, so, Did we just put our finger on uh, an explanation for uh, the Eric Weinstein thing that always gets thrown at us on the WTF 1971 <laughs> Twitter is the reason that we haven't had any major physics breakthroughs in the last 50 years because of the subconscious mental stress placed on physicists by their uncertainty of the economic future. <laughs> Ooh. Or, or the misallocation of capital that's not going towards people that should be making these breakthroughs, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, most of them are funded by these Marxist left-leaning out of touch with reality academic institutions that are oftentimes funded by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Which, no by the way, and by the way, these academic institutions need their own endowment funds in order to preserve their wealth as an institution because they can't just hold money. So they have to also gamble on the stock market. And they are hemorrhaging money right now uh, with, with everything that's going on in the world there. I wouldn't be surprised if, well... I, w I would be surprised if we see a lot less of them within um, the next year or two, just because daddy government's going to come to the rescue, no doubt, and bail out malinvestment like it seems to just want to do forever. Um, folks, this can't go on. This cannot continue to go on forever. Pretty soon, the, all of the wealth that you have will just evaporate. It will be gone because capital is a finite resource. It has to be accumulated. You can't just continue to redirect the flow of water of out of the spigot uh, forever. Eventually, the the well runs dry. Right, and and there's a there is a notion that you know the capitalists are are, are not compassionate to um, you know people that are are not as as well off in society, and that, that I think that's where again the danger of socialism comes, where we want to give back to those people, and there's plenty. Plenty of room for, um, you know, when when people have money, when 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 there's a sound society for people to have uh, private charities to to serve those needs. But um, the concentration of of capital um, is something I wanted to touch on. That you know, obviously, we're seeing um, amazing rising wealth inequality, and we're seeing lots of concentration um, towards the the one percent and the point one percent. There should be some concentration of wealth. 
because you know if if there's somebody who has an amazing company like Henry Ford or uh, or, or or even um, Microsoft and Apple and 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 uh, uh, Amazon even these these companies meet the needs of consumers and they they should be rewarded because then they can actually invest this again and 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 provide a new uh, thing for for society to consume. Um, if you just redistribute everything down, um, then you give it to the people who might be poor capital accumulators. And again, you get to see this more uh, destruction of the wealth of a society when you, you take away from those proper capital, capital accumulators. Right. And this is where the genius of the propaganda of the Marxist lie comes into play. Um, this idea that the capitalist is emotionally hardened, that he's motivated only by greed. Um, the, there, there's so many things wrong with that. Uh, so many things wrong with that because you, you have to constantly take these things back to first principles and examine them under their own light, right? I mean, you have to understand fundamentally that stealing is wrong. Don't take other people's stuff. Right, that has to be a basic building block of your understanding of the world that we live in and what's right and what's wrong. Um, markets are the mutual cooperation, the symbiotic relationship between two rational acting human beings who, through a series of coincidence of wants, um, decide to come together in a transaction uh, for what one another have to offer. Without those incentives, that relationship breaks down and doesn't exist and we go back to foraging for berries and mushrooms and loincloths. Without that um, specialization in labor and coincidence of wants and trade between rational acting individuals, there can exist no prosperity. There can exist no capital accumulation because you can't think further ahead than the next meal. Yeah, and I think another trap that um, this socialism or socialists fall into is that man, if we could only elect the right people, we could elect be uh, benevolent people, not these, you know, not these evil, greedy capitalists that just want profits, if we elect just the right people. But it always reminds me of the, the Milton Friedman quote, man, it, it's nice to elect the right people, but that's not how you change things. The way you change things is by making it profitable. And he said politically profitable, but I, I just take the politically out. The way you change things is by making it profitable for the wrong people to make the right decisions. And that's what capitalism is when it's functioning properly, when it's not underlied by social monetarism. Well, I know that they teach um, Marxism in the schools these days. I mean, I was exposed to quite a bit of it when I was going to public school, um, which at this point was what, like 10 plus years ago. I've been, I graduated college in 2014. Um, I know most of the kids out there today have read Animal Farm in school. And they don't probably understand the greater economic and philosophical implications of that book. And the reason for that is because their English lit teacher certainly didn't understand the philosophical and economic implications of that book. But you look at the story, right? What is it about? There, it's this group of animals. And they come up with this idea in their head that four legs is better than two legs, that the source of all of their problems are the two legs that live in the house and are always telling them what to do and get to have all of this nice stuff while they have to live out in the cold in the fields and do all the hard work. So they come up with this mantra, four legs, good, two legs, bad, four legs, good, two legs, bad. And they stage a revolution and they kill the farmers and they say, now we can put some of our own in charge. 
and they will they will lead us benevolently unlike those bad two legs over there and what happens over the course of the story the the pigs that get put in charge end up walking on two legs they end up becoming uh, the just like the humans that were in charge before them because nobody is better than their incentives the old boss same as the new boss um, and if you want to go i mean he's talking about the public education system which is another centralized government run uh, system um, if you want to go down the education rabbit hole um, there's a lot of resources but i know uh, for example uh, uh, daniel prince uh, on the once bitten podcast he has an episode um, with blake bradley and um, Bitcoin maximalism and homeschooling. Uh, I think he has another episode as well uh, about just education and, and homeschooling and um, the, the concept of learning. Um, so definitely recommend going down that rabbit hole too. <laughs> right. And, and Safedine has an online university that he does. You don't get a credit. It's not accredited or anything, but you will learn far more than you'd ever learn in a traditional educational institution in probably a much shorter amount of time. If you go and do Safedine's educational courses. And then uh, Stefan Levera, if you're more of like a self-taught, self-paced type person, um, you know, we, we talk about this stuff on Bitcoin Twitter all the time. Go listen to Stefan Levera's Intro to Austrian Thought episode. Listen to all the resources that he mentions. Go to Mises.org. Half of these publications are free, you know, and, but you have to really do the work to understand these things. You know, there was a reason that Mises' treatise was like a thousand pages long. It's because he was very thorough. He didn't want any of his ideas or explanations to be misconstrued or not explained properly. And that's because there's a lot of, uh, you have to establish a lot of definitions to think through these things clearly. And you have to take everything back to its first principles and work up from there. And if your conclusions don't jive with your first principles, well, then they're probably wrong. Well, then they are wrong. Um, and that's the ultimate problem with with these Marxist theories is that they don't hold water in regards to first principles thinking. Yeah, it all comes back to critical thinking and using logic and reason. You, you have to start at the beginning if you want to get to the end. Mankind will never be better than his incentives. Yeah, we are flawed human beings that uh, <laughs> we, 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 we're, we're going to go through the path of lethal resistance there, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, okay, did we rail on socialists enough? Do we? Oh wait, no, you know what we didn't talk about? Uh, what? How stupid in. So uh, this is something I tweeted, but I need to repeat it for the pod. Um, I said that libertarian socialists are worse than status bootlickers oh, because what? at least the status bootlickers are honest about their intentions. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it goes back to that what you started the podcast with, which is the the useful idiots and uh, what was the other thing? The puppet masters. The puppet masters. So uh, when he says that, you know, socialists are lying, uh, it, it's, he's not talking about the useful idiots that, that follow this stuff. He's talking about the ones that have uh, uh, amassed this uh, pretty convincing and uh, very, you know, people are sympathetic to this propaganda of men, but um, those people, those are the ones lying. Not, not, not your friend that's like, oh, like, let's help people and do so, socialism. Right. So if, if you believe that socialism is a superior system for everybody, then I've got news for you. You're not the puppet master. You're the useful <laughs> idiot. It's better for a very small group. And you're not part of that group, buddy. I'm sorry you know, to tell you. Metallica. Sad but true. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that we didn't touch on in regards to libertarian socialism and Bitcoin is that these people are even dumber than 
all the other groups. They're even dumber than like your modern day Marxist has to be pretty stupid because he's got historical examples of how bad of an idea it is. Libertarian socialist Bitcoiners. Are you kidding me? Like these ideas are fundamentally incompatible. Bitcoin, Bitcoin's breakthrough is that it's uncensorable or at least um, censorship resistant private property. You can't have your cake and eat it too in this regard. And that's why libertarian socialism has never made sense for me because those two ideas are so incompatible. But Bitcoin, which just embodies this um, primal free market anarcho-capitalist liberty centered money system, the idea that you, you could seize the um, means of production under such a system is foolhardy. Yeah, the, the cryptographic protection of private property um, it, it would only go so far as the socialists say it would, and then and then it would stop right there, right, right, Colin? Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of like it's kind of like yeah, well, we want all the same stuff you guys want. We just we just want to make sure that we limit the free market a little bit. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how we got in this mess in the first place, right? And again, remember, folks, so communism can exist under anarcho-capitalism, but the opposite is not true. Right. And, and that's really the, what this all comes down to. Um, you know, the people who tell me that theft is nonviolent, right? I mean, great, but I'm not the one trying to force anything on you. You're the one trying to force things on me, right? You're the one who paid, you're the ones I'm speaking colloquially and generally, you're the ones who paid for my products and gave me this profit, right? I was clearly satisfying your needs. Um, and now you're telling me that I can't have the fruits of my labor, uh, a man can do nothing better in this life than to work hard and enjoy the fruits of his labor. That is a fundamental truth. Uh, and, and if you fight against that truth, well, then you're on the side of a lie. And with lies come destruction. And that's why you see all of these societies break down in violence and destruction. And ultimately, you have to return to the axiomatic realities of our existence, which is free market cooperation between acting individuals. That's why... China and Russia are basically capitalist countries now. Right. Libertarianism is the default state. <laughs> Communism is the ones where humans mess it up too. Right. right. Varying degrees and magnitudes of legalized theft and slavery. That's all it is. If you, you don't have to spend very long studying these things. All you need to know is that all of economic and all of political thought boil down to two different things. Either theft is wrong, don't do it, or... Theft is okay to varying degrees of magnitude as long as those of us who are in this circle agree that it's okay at the right times. That's the, the what do you call it? The absurdist reducto or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or the, uh, what is it? Oh, I'm using it too. Reducto absurdum, I think is what it's. It's like a, like a, like a fair weather protection of, of liberties, right? All right, guys, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that chat between Ben and I about Bitcoin Marxism. It's, it's funny to even say. I, I hope that the episode title didn't trigger too many of you. So anyway, if you guys enjoy the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you can find all of our episodes on just about any of your favorite podcast catchers, whether that be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, 
etc, etc. You can also find all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com. And there you will also find an email where you can get in contact with us if you want to have any dialogue about the show, if you have any questions or comments, or you'd maybe like to be a potential guest or sponsor, you can contact me at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can reach out to Ben or I on Twitter. I'm at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C, and Ben is at MrCoolBP, those are the letters BP. We're both very active on Twitter and our DMs are open, so feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about Bitcoin or economics or anything you just want to chat about. If you guys are enjoying the show, it really helps us out a lot if you can give us thumbs up or stars or reviews on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. But if you don't have time for that, that's no worries. We don't mind. We appreciate you listening either way. We prefer quality over quantity here at the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. So you might find that our episodes are a little bit fewer and farther in between than some of the other podcasts out there. But if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to discuss, or if you would like to be a potential guest, please reach out to Ben or I, and we will totally talk with you and uh, see if we can make it happen. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you stop by and hear my and Ben's, (laughs) increasingly so, rantings and ravings. Remember to question everything and always try to be logical in everything that you do. And I will see you guys in the next one. Uh.